Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 to chapter 4, verse 5. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you to our Sunday afternoon worship service. It's so good to worship with you this afternoon. When I was uh, in the second gr- uh, seventh grade, my middle school, they, they hosted this huge science fair, and it was a really big deal. There would be uh, big prizes for the top entries, and the judges were actual scientists from Unilever who were coming to score the experiments. Uh, and I thought to myself, this really needs to be good. And it was. <laughs> My experiment still amazes me to this day. I took three flower pots and I planted a bean seed in each one of them. And all three plants were given the same amount of sunlight, the same amount of water, but every day, Multiple times throughout the day, I would do this. I would take the first plant, plant A, and I would talk to it. I would praise it. I would lavish encouragement and positivity on it. I would say, you are the most beautiful plant I've ever seen. You are a gosh darn sequoia, a towering giant that's going to reach the skies. I'm so proud of you. Keep growing. I love you. And then I would take the second plant, plant B, and I would do the exact opposite. I would say, I can't even look at you right now. You call yourself a plant? You're a miserable excuse for life. I hate you so much. I just want to throw you away. I I would yell and I would curse at it. And then the third plant was my control plant, so I just left it alone. (laughs) I did this throughout the day, every day, for a few weeks, and I took pictures to document the development. And at first, they sprouted the same. They started growing the same. But to my amazement, plant A grew the tallest. Plant B was the shortest. And it was noticeable. I wrote about how words and tone have a formative effect on the development of plants. Amazing, right? Well, the science fair came, the judges took a look at it, and then they said, there's not enough science here. 
which is why I have boycotted Unilever products for the past 30 years. <laughs> but you know what? They were right. I, I didn't really understand the science behind it. And I still don't. But as a pastor now, I, I can kind of understand my science experiment from a theological perspective. All creation created by God to reflect his goodness and his beauty, the right words will help life to flourish and thrive. The wrong words will hurt and destroy the created world. And in our passage today, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, as a pastor, you need to speak the right words to your people. I mean, if good and bad words can have a direct and significant impact on the development and growth of plants, how much more in God's design will his word be formative for Christian salvation, Christian growth, and Christian development? We've been going through this sermon series this fall on 2 Timothy, and we're calling it From Embers to a Flame. And our prayer has been that especially for those of you who have been feeling stagnant in your faith or distant from God, that flames of faith would be kindled in your heart through this series. And I think that especially as the weather turns colder, the holidays are upon us, many of us, are facing various inner struggles, seasonal depression, family stresses, past trauma. And the way we deal with these things is we often self-medicate in various ways. But what our passage tells us is that what we truly need, what we all truly need, is God's word. We need to hear from God his revelation, his word for us. And as we encounter God in his word, we can find true and lasting change, healing, restoration, salvation. So my hope is that we find God even today, or rather he finds us in his word. So I want to highlight three things from our passage today. The importance of the word, the doctrine of the word, and finally, our commitment to the word. Importance, doctrine, and commitment. First, the importance of the word. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. These are the words right after our passage today. And what this means is we're getting to the very end of this letter. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, my time is up. These are Paul's final words to Timothy and his last written words as far as we know. So what he has to say at this moment is really really important and the way he says it is very telling you know, throughout second timothy paul has been instructing timothy encouraging timothy but in this chapter chapter 4 verse 1 he takes it up a notch he says it's time to get real let's get serious for a moment he says i charge you 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He doesn't just tell Timothy himself. He charges Timothy in the presence of witnesses. And who are these witnesses? None other than God and Christ Jesus. And he tells him, preach the word. Why do people swear oaths before they testify or or take office? Why do you need witnesses to sign a marriage license? Why do you gather all your family, friends, and loved ones if you have to hold an intervention for someone that you care about? The presence of witnesses shows the importance of the message being delivered. Paul can just tell Timothy, preach the word, Timothy. But he doesn't do that. He tells Timothy there are witnesses, God the Father, Christ Jesus, because what he's about to command him to do is of the utmost importance. Preach the word. This is the most serious way that he can possibly say this to Timothy. Paul says, Timothy, preach the word and don't you dare deviate from preaching the word in season out of season when things are good when things are bad when you have to rebuke when you have to encourage when paul commands timothy to preach the word the word he uses here is caruso in the greek and it refers to the proclamations of a herald now when we think of preaching today we imagine a pastor explaining teaching the word of god But Caruso, it calls to mind an imperial herald, the spokesman of the emperor, proclaiming the message of a great king. So the picture is not a pastor preaching from a pulpit, but it's higher, it's loftier. Paul shows preaching the word to be more like a proclamation in a public gathering. You know, rulers back then, they had heralds. And these heralds, they carried the authority of the ruler. They announced the edicts of the king. So when we think about the word of God, we must first remember whose words they are. The Bible is the very words of God spoken to us. I'm going to be honest with you. Even as a pastor, there are a lot of days when I don't really want to read the Bible It's on the list of things I should do, but I don't necessarily want to do. It's an obligation, a duty. But what I'm failing to realize in those moments is that the Bible is the divine words of my great king. You know, in Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. But you know how he gives it at first? He first speaks them directly to the people of Israel. The Israelites, they're encamped around Mount Sinai in the wilderness. They gather around the mountain, and they're forbidden from even touching the mountain because God would speak to them from the mountain. He's right there on top of the mountain. And he was so holy that if they even touched the foot of the mountain, they would be consumed and die. And God speaks the Ten Commandments to the people, and it is traumatic. The words of God were thunderous, 
terrifying, earth-shaking, so much so that the people begged Moses to speak to them for God. Exodus 20, it says, The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Friends, let's not miss the profundity, the power of the word of God. In Exodus 33, Moses, uh, he's, he's, very, he's feeling very close to God. And, and in a moment he says, God, we're, we're good friends now. Can I ask you for a favor? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Moses, he kind of wants to take the relationship up a notch. He wants to go to the next level. He, he wanted to see God's glory. He wants a further revelation of God in his glory. He wants full disclosure. He wants complete access to God. And so what does Moses get? Well, God's response is, well, the problem, Moses, is that man cannot see me and live. So what God does is he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He covers him with his hand and he passes by. And as he passes by, God speaks to Moses and he reveals himself to him. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses asked to see God's glory, but God reveals his glory to Moses by covering his face and speaking to him. God's glory is not revealed by sight, but by God's own word about himself. Moses wants a vision. He wants an experience of God. What does he get? He gets a sermon. Do you want to see God's glory? We sing that sometimes, don't we? Show me your glory, show me your power. Do you feel spiritually dry during the week? Do you have a hard time sometimes connecting Sunday service to your Monday mornings? Do you want to experience God's power at work, at school, at home? The place where God wants to be found is in his word. This is what R.C. Sproul says. He says, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the scriptures. Scripture is profound. The Bible reveals the glory and the power of God to us. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is God-breathed. Let's focus for a moment on that word, all. The Bible is 66 books written by about 40 authors over 15 centuries. It's not one account written by one prophet like the Quran is. The variety, the breadth of scripture, it exists because it speaks to every aspect of the human life. 
There's not one part of your life that the Bible is not relevant to. 66 books, 40 authors, written over 15 centuries, all telling one beautiful story. The Bible, it's not disparate accounts. It's not uh, an anthology of perspectives. It's one story which is woven and developed organically throughout human history. And all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, including Levitical laws, wisdom literature, poetry, historical books, prophecy after prophecy, the gospel accounts of Jesus, the epistles that the apostles write together, all of this is breathed out by God to reveal himself to us. The word is really, really important. But Paul doesn't just say that the word is really important. He lays out specific doctrines of scripture here to show why it's so important. So we see four very important doctrines of Scripture kind of drawn out from our passage today. I just want to highlight them real quick. The acronym is SCAN, S-C-A-N. Four things, sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity. Real quick, the Word of God is sufficient. And what that means is that everything we need to know about God is in the Bible. You know, God does reveal himself outside of the Bible, apart from the Bible. This is called general revelation. You can look at the stars. You can look at creation, marvel at God's beauty, his creativity, his existence. You can see the goodness of God in the world, reflected in the world, in other people. But it's in the Bible that we can learn of who God is and what he requires of us. Our passage says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient. We don't need new revelations. We don't need dreams. We don't need visions. We don't need prophets or experts to give us new information about Jesus. You know, the Bible, it doesn't give us everything we want to know. Right? It's not a science textbook, for example. It's not a self-help guide. But Scripture gives us everything we truly need to know about God. It's sufficient. But it's also clear. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All of the Bible is profitable. And what that means is that the Bible is able to speak into your life no matter who you are. You don't need multiple degrees. You don't need fluency in the original languages in order for Scripture to be profitable to you. I love that Paul mentions in verse 15 and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What this means is that the Bible can speak to Timothy as a child just as clearly as it can speak to a seasoned rabbi like Paul. So whether you are fluent in Koine Greek and Hebrew or you're my four-year-old, God can speak to you through his word. Now, it doesn't mean that every part of the Bible is just as clear as others, right? 
I'm sure there are many passages in the Bible where you're just kind of scratching your head. But what it means is that God can reveal himself through his word to anyone and everybody. Is reading the Bible daunting? Is it overwhelming for you? No matter how much, no matter how little you know about it, the Bible is profitable to teach, correct, and train you. Third, authoritative. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired. Not inspiring, it's inspired. It's God's word to us. It's God opening his mouth, exhaling his word to us. The word is God's word. And it's exactly what he wanted to be written down. What this means is that everything to which the Bible speaks, it has the final word. It's the arbiter of truth for Christians. Finally, necessary. The word of God is necessary. We need God's word to tell us how to live and how to be saved. Now, this is not something we can get anywhere else. We can learn about God's existence and his moral goodness in creation. We can go on a hike, for example, behold God's creation. We can listen to Beethoven. We can read Nabokov and marvel at the creator behind all human creativity. But general revelation, personal experience, and human reason cannot show us the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save us. Scripture alone is necessary for our salvation. And Paul tells Timothy this in verse 14. But for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the way it works is this. The Bible gives us God's wisdom, which leads us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture is sufficient, it's clear, it's authoritative, it's necessary. But you know, part of the reason why Paul kind of emphasizes, he's so adamant to Timothy, preach the word, it's because people will become increasingly resistant to the word and the sound teaching of it. Look at verse chapter 4 verse 3 for the time is coming Paul says when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths you know we're seeing this today more and more Christians today are moving further away from the doctrine of scripture the truth of the Bible is no longer sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. Even as a pastor, I'm hearing more and more objections to these doctrines. I just want to point out a couple of them that I'm hearing a lot of lately. Okay? First, sufficient. Here's the objection that I'm hearing a lot. There's a lot in the Bible that's regressive. It was written in an ancient context. There's all this misogyny, genocide, slavery, polygamy that the Bible seems to support. So as a society, we've progressed beyond these ancient principles. So we can't just rely on what the Bible says. 
It may have been sufficient for ancient people in their context, but not for us in our modern context. It's an objection I'm hearing a lot. Second one, clear. The Bible's really hard to understand. Look at all these Old Testament laws. We don't hold to all of the biblical principles now. It's impossible to do that today. So you can't just take certain laws and emphasize them. You can't just take these principles and say these are mandatory and ignore all the other ones. Scripture is not clear, so we shouldn't think that we have it all figured out. No one should try to push their interpretation of the Bible on others because it's just not clear. Another objection I'm hearing, authoritative. The Bible was written by men thousands of years ago. There's all these different translations and versions of the Bible. Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox Christians, they all have different versions of the Bible. There's all these different interpretations of the Bible. How do we know which one is authoritative? We can't really know. So we can learn about God and Jesus in the Bible, but the Bible itself is not the inspired, authoritative, and inerrant word of God. So we should read the Bible, we should learn from it, but it's not this transcendent standard to which we must all submit and subscribe. It's a big one. Last one, necessary. You can know the Bible all you want, But that doesn't mean anything if you don't live rightly. So many people know their Bibles, but do horrible things. And this has been the case throughout history. It's more important to be kind and loving and accepting. The Bible, it can help me be a better person, but it's not necessary for me. These are just a few of the objections that I'm hearing a lot of. Many Christians are moving away from the inerrancy of the Bible and the doctrines of Scripture. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you must be sober-minded. You can't allow yourself to be swayed by cultural winds that blow away from truth and are contrary to God's Word. But I also want to mention that it's possible to wander away from truth and sound teaching, but still believe in the Bible. While we must always try to be biblical, we should be careful not to become biblicists or to veer into biblicism. What's the difference? Biblicism is a problem in the church today. It's this over-rigid adherence to the Bible, to certain texts of the Bible, or teachings without considering the context and other biblical teachings. So biblicists, they're often legalists who use the Bible to emphasize what they want to emphasize. Often in a very disproportionate way. They may treat the Bible like a a science textbook, for example, or make rules about things that that aren't really there, like about dating or, or drinking or politics. Here's what uh, Terry Johnson says. He says, Believers must not fall into an unwarranted biblicism 
which in the name of biblical authority narrows the scope of its application to only that which the Bible explicitly states and not to that which it implies as well. There's a da- this is a danger when the nature of Scripture is not understood. There's not a verse for every occasion. The Bible is not a book of detailed casuistry providing answers for every imaginable ethical question. No doubt some have wished that the Bible were such a book, yet it still applies to every occasion. How so? It reveals general principles which, to be grasped, must be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and to be applied concretely in life must be joined with reason and wisdom. The need of wisdom can be illustrated by this fact. Almost all of life is lived between the lines of explicit biblical commands. One way to know if you're veering away from the truth is this. The Bible is primarily about Jesus and his mission to save his people. If that's true, does your study of the Bible make you more or less like Jesus? If you're very knowledgeable about the Bible, but you're a jerk in the way that you live, you're unloving in the way that you address others and tell others to live, then maybe you are wandering away from sound teaching. We have to be sober-minded, which means we're not stumbling off the path that we are to walk. We have to be committed to the Word. We have to be committed to the Word because only in the Word will we find the resources and the power to live the way we should. Life is really hard. We live in a broken and fallen world. The ravages of sin are everywhere. Death, disease, depression, anxiety, guilt, shame, abuse, war. And the way that the world often deals with difficulties is to prescribe self-medication in the wrong ways. Endless distractions, searches for comfort and significance in the wrong places. So how are we as Christians going to make it to the end? Where are we going to get the power to live faithfully and rightly? By being committed to the word. In which we find this glorious hope and incomparable power. I heard this illustration from Rebecca McLaughlin last year when I attended the Gospel Coalition Conference. And I've been thinking about it a lot this week because uh, last week I just finished reading uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban to uh, my sons Andy and Caleb. It's such a good book. And they loved it. But if you remember the story, in the climax of the book, Harry and his godfather Sirius... They're lying at the edge of the lake outside of Hogwarts. And these horrifying dementors are coming after them. Dementors, they're these creatures who suck all the happiness and joy out of a person, and they can even suck out a person's soul. And the only way that you can repel a dementor is to cast an extremely advanced spell called the Patronus spell. But in order to cast the Patronus spell, you need a very powerful, happy thought. In the past, 
Harry had tried, but it was very difficult for him to cast even a small Patronus to, to repel one Dementor. And now there were hundreds of Dementors flying down upon them. And right at the last moment, Harry looks across the lake and he sees someone in the darkness who looks kind of familiar. This person shouts out, Expecto Patronum! And cast this dazzling Patronus. A glorious, light-filled stag charges across the lake and repels all of the Dementors. And as the story goes on, Harry and his friend Hermione, they use this device called the Time Turner, which enables them to kind of go back in time and fix things that went wrong that day. And as Harry begins to play with time, he begins to believe that the person who cast the Patronus spell across the lake was his dead father. Somehow, his dad had come to rescue him. And his dad was his greatest hero. The one who had died when Harry was one, trying to protect him from the Dark Lord. And as the story unfolds, Harry and Hermione, they retrace their steps and go back in time and they end up watching themselves from the past. They're following their past selves. And they get to the edge of the lake and they're watching the Dementors come down on past Harry. And Harry tells Hermione, my dad's coming. He's coming to save the day. And the Dementors are coming closer and closer. And Harry's saying, any minute now, my dad is going to come. And then in the final moment, it dawns on him. And he realizes it wasn't his father he saw. It was him. Harry gets up, raises his wand, and he shouts out, Expecto Patronum. And he's able to summon the strength and the hope to send that stag charging across the lake. And the reason, Harry says, that he's able to do it is because he knows that it's already been done. Why do we need the word? Because it gives us hope. Not that our circumstances will improve, not that pain and suffering will lessen and we can find happiness in the here and now. We can live faithfully because the Bible tells us the story of our Savior who has done it all for us. We read the word and we know that his victory is already won. Christ has died for our sins. He has risen from the grave. Death is defeated. Our debt is paid in full. The beauty of the gospel that we find in the word, it should be everything for us. It should ruin us to all other tastes. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will save. The Bible reveals to us and grounds us in the truth of what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do. And the more grounded we are in that reality, the more we will be able to live lives of faith, conviction, and hope. Let us be a church that is rooted in the word. 
Let's increase our appetite for Scripture. Let's read our Bibles. Let's study the Scriptures and in them encounter the living God. Expecto Patronum. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you want to be known and you reveal yourself to us in your word. So may your word be everything for us. May we be rooted in your word. And may that give us the courage and the hope to live in this fallen world. Thank you for the gospel, the good news. May it be everything for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.